Welcome to the June 23rd, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get into the show, let me clear up while we're wearing these shirts. In 2014, our beloved floor director, Susie Aikman, passed away. She worked for Colorado Public Television for over 20 years and was a dear friend. And she loved Hawaiian shirts. So we decided to wear her beloved shirts once a year to pay tribute to her and everything she did for the show. So, Susie, this is for you. Let's get a quick take on Representative Mike Kaufman and Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman filing for divorce this week. The Colorado Power couple married in 2005 and are calling the decision mutual and private. Natasha Gardner from 5280, articles that are 5280. Uh, it is uh, private and mutual, but this is a couple that both will face significant re-election campaigns in 2018. Uh, all is fair in love and war and politics. So will this be the last we hear of the divorce, or will it rear its ugly head because of the fights they have soon to come? Well, I think it won't be the last that we hear of, of the the divorce, but um, the timing is interesting because it gives enough breathing room between now and any campaigns that they might be looking at that it really should be a non-issue. I mean, I think in 2017 it is a non-issue. We have plenty of examples of politicians who have been divorced. It's not the same bomb that it would have been, you know, 10 or 15 or, or more years than that. And I think the key thing is that they are Colorado's power couple, but I think they may be just as powerful separate as well. That's a good point. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Within the Republican Party, there are two of the big names you hear when other offices come up. Who's going to run for governor? Who's going to run for Senate? Mike Kaufman and Cynthia Kaufman are, always in the, are often in those conversations. Does this divorce affect anything within the Republican power structure? Not unless they run in the gubernatorial primary against each other, which I don't think they will. They're, they're both... Uh very sensible and self-controlled people, so I don't think there's going to be repercussions. Back in 1964, when Nelson Rockefeller was running for the Republican presidential nomination, having recently dumped his original wife uh, to take up with a younger woman, that definitely hurt him in the primaries. But uh, in, in contrast, uh, these days, I don't think amicable divorces uh, have any political impact. Penfield Tate, attorney with QTAC Rock, also a longtime state lawmaker. Now, we talk about elections, and I think if the people involved have uh, the, the make the choice, they would keep it private, they could just get to the issues. But we know that other groups get involved, other groups that are nameless, that sit behind closed doors, and can fire up anything they want. Does this become a bigger deal next year? Aloha. Um, <laughs> and, and I think not, unless both Cynthia and Mike are involved in Republican primaries. I think the issue is liable to surface more likely in a Republican primary contest than in a general election against a Democratic opponent. I just don't see it helping any Democratic opponent in a general election against either of them. Um, and David's right. They're, they're both kind of controlled, restrained people. There are no kids involved. Unfortunately, their dog passed away five years ago. So it's it's the two of them deciding it's time to part ways, and they'll figure out how to divide their stuff, and that's their business. 
Noelle Phillips rounds out the panel, crime reporter with the Denver Post. Uh, so with divorce sadly being pretty common and affecting folks on all sides of the political aisle, does this become a non-story pretty quickly? I think so, unless somehow this bleeds over into their work as public servants and interferes with them actually doing the jobs that we've elected them to do. Otherwise, I, d I don't think it'll have much of an impact. Let's get to it. After weeks of closed-door meetings and criticism from Democrats and Republicans, including Governor John Hickelooper on CNN, GOP U.S. Senate leaders released its version of health care reform legislation on Thursday. Among many changes, the Better Care Reconciliation Act of 2017, which likely would need a little better title to roll off the tongue, would completely phase out the Medicaid expansion after four years, defund Planned Parenthood, and establish a $2 billion fund to fight our nation's opioid addiction crisis. Natasha, this is far from over. This is actually just the, the kickoff. But if Mitch McConnell gets his way, it would be done by the July 4th holiday. Do you think there's any shot of that vote happening between now and July 4th? I don't think it's a good thing for Amer the American public if it happens that quickly. I think we need some more debate about what's going on here. Um, as you said, it needs a better name, and I think the better name will be Trump Care, just like the Affordable Care Act became Obamacare be before it. Uh, there's so many things to be concerned about in this bill, and I think we'll spend a lot of time in the next few days hearing more about what some of those specific concerns are. In, in Colorado, um, Cory Gardner has already said that he, he wants to look more at, at the Medicaid issue and, and to look at it, particularly how we're funding um, care for kids with disabilities and kids with sort of very extreme or complicated medical cases. That seems like a no-brainer to me. But there's a lot of things in this, this bill that I think I thought were no-brainers and then now are going to get pulled back um, for the American people. One of the things that still dismays me, not just with this particular issue, but politics in general is that people could run on an issue, say we're going to repeal this, but have no actual plan for what was going to go forward. So then we go through the circus that we've had in the last few months and the closed door session to draft something together in what feels like a haphazard way. I, I mean, at what point are we going to hold our politicians accountable for that? That you can't just say that something's wrong. Let's come up with actual solutions to, to fix it. And yes, I guess so now they have that solution. I just would also say to people that if there's a vote on this, I think there's going to be some Republicans that hold out that say, okay, we want this little takeaway here. I need this to make my constituents happy. At the end of the day, a yes vote is, is truly a yes vote. It's not a yes with um, some, some footnotes. It's not a yes, but reluctantly. It is truly a yes vote saying that this should become something that is law in our country. And um, yeah, so it's time for people, if they have a problem with it, get on the phone with their senators, but they should also call their insurance companies. They should call their employers. They should talk to their um, state house representatives. This is an issue that is going to be in the news on probably a daily basis for many more months. David, I heard a great quote this week, uh, a politician saying that arguing or, or uh, debating a bill like this behind closed doors without getting public input, without doing it in the public forum was not only partisan but a recipe for disaster. And it was Mitch McConnell from 2010 talking about what the Democrats did. If the Republicans are going to replay the strategy that uh, was criticized and eventually led to them losing the Senate in 2010, are they writing their own recipe for disaster? Well, right. The Democrats lost 63 House seats uh, in 2010, probably half of those because of Obamacare and half just because of other political reasons. Sure. Uh, it's tough for people to know who to trust in this kind of situation. I think most people in the audience, like me, have not yet read this 142-page bill. 
I think uh, Senator Gardner's right to say it should be slowed down. So it's one thing to draft a bill behind closed doors, but then whenever, whatever you negotiate and, and produce, that should be out for the public long enough for them, them to, there to be public discussion. When you try to figure out what's going on, you should consider the credibility of the source. So don't treat as credible the sources like Barack Obama, who told you in 2009 and 2010 that under his plan, you could keep your doctor. If you like your insurance, you could keep it. That your premiums were going to go down $2,500. The opposite of that happened to tens of millions of people, and now people are stuck with a the death panel of Obamacare, as it turns out, it wasn't hidden in one little place. It was the thing as a whole. It's a death panel for itself. It's on the road to financial collapse. It's unsustainable. It was created with accounting tricks and fraud, which if the federal government were traded on the, on the New York Stock Exchange, would send everybody responsible for it to prison for fraud. But if, if, if President Obama was wrong in 2009 and 10, or everybody that's telling us that it's going to be better now also wrong? Well, they, they probably, yes. And so what, what I do, what I trust, is I'm, I'm affiliated with the Cato Institute in D.C. They were the ones who called out the accounting lies and tricks and obvious unsustainability on Obamacare immediately. And they're saying this thing, more of the same, Chain, rearranges some of the deck chairs, has some different things about it, but does nothing to solve the fundamental problem that this federal hyper-controlled system of health care is going down. If you don't change it, it's going to go down. And if you do these changes, it's still going to go down. Penn, uh, you have a long uh, career as an attorney, but also uh, you held a long esteemed career as a lawmaker. Now, as a state lawmaker, not a United States Senate, but I would, under, I would believe that you would understand the strategy of sometimes doing things behind closed doors or sometimes uh, faster than others might think they want to do it, or slowing it down to being more public. When you look at this strategy, seeing what happened to Democrats in 2010, and seeing what Republicans are doing now, what do you make of the strategy? The, the strategy is consistent with the ultimate objective. Let's be clear. This bill has nothing to do with health care. This is tax reform phase one. It is masquerading as a health care policy debate, but the reason you don't hear much debate about the policy is that's not really what's driving this. The Affordable Care Act was funded in part by uh, an income tax, uh, increased taxes on people earning over $200,000, investment income, indoor tanning salons, prescription drugs, and medical devices. This Senate bill repeals all of those tax increases and even gives a retroactive tax cut on capital gains. This debate is not primarily about health care. The problem is health care has become the surrogate for Mitch McConnell and his friends' desires to provide tax relief to the richest 1% in the country. Don't get me wrong. It's their prerogative as, as leadership. That's what they care about and that's what they want to do, but they're not being transparent about it. And the problem is a whole lot of people are going to get hurt in terms of, and the Affordable Care Act wasn't perfect. I think we all agree with that. And it was never intended to be perfect or permanent. It was a start at something. So the question you have to ask to channel Ronald Reagan is, will you be better off in four months than you were four months ago? And the answer invariably when it comes to health care is no because the House version and the Senate version are disasters. In terms of McConnell's strategy, if your real objective is 
tax policy change, you almost don't care if this bill passes because you're going to do another tax policy bill right behind this. So his idea of writing it in secret, dumping it on the table, he either gets votes for it or he doesn't, but he at least can say we put forward a bill, we tried to repeal Obamacare, either we do it or we don't, and we just move on, and now let's talk about tax policy. Noel, you and your colleagues at the Denver Post are going to be covering uh, politicians like not only Governor Hickenlooper, but Cory Gardner, who were making national headlines throughout this week about this topic. Um, they changed over the week. We were talking about Senator Gardner not being able to see the bill yet, but then that changed as soon as the bill dropped. Governor Hickenlooper is on with John Kasich on CNN, and the story changes once again the, the bill comes out. How do you think these, both these Colorado uh, elected leaders look at the situation and how they're ultimately going to react, both Governor Hickelooper on the state side and what, how Cory Gardner is going to vote in this one. Right now, he's formally on the fence. Right. Well, our Washington correspondent, Mark Matthews, reported yesterday, and it was in today's paper, um, Gardner, who's part of uh, Republican leadership, has hinted that he is not ready to vote for this. Um, McConnell can't afford to lose Gardner and even one more senator. So it'll be interesting to see if they stand up to the boss, Mitch McConnell. Um, Hickenlooper, this may be a chance for him to raise his profile in, in national democratic politics. Um, I think both of these guys are going to be vocal and going to be seen, and we're going to hear a lot from them. Our politics team is going to be really busy in the coming weeks as this gets hashed out. I think you and Natasha are both right. We'll be talking about this for a long time. Former detainees once held at a privately run immigrant detention center in Aurora have filed a federal lawsuit citing exploitation. The suit represents up to 60,000 people detained at the GEO Group-owned facility over 10 years and challenges the $1 a day compensation offered in exchange for maintenance-based jobs throughout the facility. The 1,500-bed center reported a $2.3 billion revenue in 2016 with an adjusted $163 million in adjusted net income. David, uh, as one of our two esteemed attorneys at the table, uh, as lawsuits go, how does this look from the outset, and what might it, how might it impact the immigration discussion in Colorado? Well, it looks very plausible uh, at the outset because it's already survived the first attempt by the defendant to get rid of it, and the defendant's now appealing that class action certification. Remember, these detention centers are not for people who have been convicted of immigration crimes. And they're not people who have been determined to be, that they should be deported because they're illegal aliens. It's people for whom there are credible charges about that, but no, no final determination. So they still have, even though they're being detained because they're a flight risk, uh, there is still some presumption of innocence there. So when you say you can either do the maintenance of the facility for a dollar a day or we can put you in solitary confinement. That does seem to get close to what the 13th Amendment prohibits, which is uh, involuntary servitude, except after conviction of a crime. It has huge national implications because this is far from the only facility, private facility nationwide, uh, that does this. Uh, in terms of what it says about immigration, I don't think anything. I mean, the, you can be for illegal immigration or against it, um, but if we're going to have any immigration laws at all, they're going to be detention centers uh, for people who violate whatever laws do exist. But the question is, are those centers themselves, even when dealing with people 
maybe 95% of whom turn out to be illegal aliens. They still have to be run in accordance with the U.S. Constitution. Penn, you are our other esteemed lawyer at the table with QTAC Rock. Uh, as you look at this uh, lawsuit, it, at least it reminded me about the election last year where Colorado had the opportunity to take uh, the word slavery out of its own constitution. Now, it didn't have to do anything with the 1860s. It had to do with something like this, where in prisons, would this be considered something? Now, this isn't slavery, but it brings up that conversation. So do you think that will echo with this lawsuit if it continues? I think it will. You know, we have had a national uh, problem with the explosive growth in the private prison, private detention center industry for years. When I spent time in the legislature, part of why I spent so much time trying to rewrite sentencing laws and decriminalize certain activity is because as a state, we knew we were going to run out of money and we were going to run out of dirt with the way we were investing in these private prisons and our state-owned and operated prisons. It's just not sustainable. And the problem you have here is now, and David made a, a point that's very important for people to understand, many people in these detention facilities haven't been convicted of anything. They're being held pending consideration of whether they've committed a crime. What do you do with the people who are imposed, who are, who are placed under these conditions, they're working for a buck a day or facing or maybe spend time in solitary confinement and it's determined in a hearing that they did nothing wrong, that they're properly documented or there was a paperwork error. How do you make up for the life they've lost under these circumstances? And it's going to have national implications because this is a cottage industry that has just exploded around the country and it's wrong. It's just wrong the way they function. Noel, this is hitting some of the sweet spots. You're the crime reporter at the Denver Post. This is talking about uh, not necessarily, well, there's a crime involved, but again, as, as Penn and David both mentioned, uh, not uh, any sort of judgments. People aren't serving time. What do you make of the lawsuit? We're going to hear more about it. Oh, definitely. And I, I, when I was, I was researching this um, issue, one thing that's interesting, too, is the people in these detention facilities have no control over how long they are there. Um, so NPR reported in February, I believe, that there are 300 immigration judges in the country that do these deportation hearings. They each have a backlog of cases of about 1,800. And the Trump administration wants to add Border Patrol and ICE agents. So that would theoretically mean that more people will be sent to these detention centers. So now we're going to, like, have this incredible backlog. People are just going to be sitting here. And now we're going to tell them you have to go to work for a dollar a day and or dollar an hour or you could go to solitary confinement which by the way solitary confinement like more and more corrections experts are just saying that is not a good idea even for the most hardened criminals who've been convicted for something and these folks are facing a deportation hearing it's not necessarily like they're not violent or they're probably moms and dads and construction workers and hotel maids and um, I actually have a guy who calls me from the Centennial Center daily. I'm afraid to even mention this because if he sees it, it'll encourage him more. Um, he was convicted back in the run-up to the Iraq War on some kind of espionage charges, served his time in federal prison, is now waiting in Centennial for deportation to, I think, Lebanon. Um, and he's been there for months, just sitting and waiting. It's been ordered to be deported, and so he's just waiting. So there's like... And at, He's like a very educated man. So there's like all kinds of people of all nationalities just mm -hmm. sitting here waiting for something to happen. So this this lawsuit, especially with immigration today, this isn't going to fade from the public's consciousness. 
Natasha, 5280 and yourself have done a lot of different stories, whether it's about uh, prisons or immigration, everything in between. Your take. Well, what's interesting here is uh, we've talked about the popularity, sort of the rise of this privatized system. 65% um, of detainees are now in this type of um, detention center, um, this private detention center. So it's a huge part of the, the population, uh, of this particular population that's being held in these private centers. These private centers are also big business. So the company involved in this, I believe they were the first to get a big contract to build a new detention center under Trump's administration. And it dates back to Obama's administration before that too. So there's a, there's a long history and it's, it's potentially only getting bigger. And I think that's why it's so timely right now. There's actually a similar case in California with a different company. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next few weeks, even months, we start to see more cases across the country. Wow. Let's get a quick take on this last one. In a 7-3 vote on Monday, the Aurora City Council voted to add a measure to the November ballot that would change the language in the city charter regarding the construction of racetracks. If passed, language will be removed, allowing officials to pursue the development of, quote, an entertainment district as long as it's more than a half mile from a residential zone. Penn, we're doing quick takes on this one. Is NASCAR coming to Aurora? Well, it, it would appear that it might if voters reverse what they did in 1999. At least city council did the right thing putting it on the ballot because voters put the prohibition in the charter. So it's only right that they should be asked if they're ready to, to remove it. Noel, it seems that Aurora is making a big move here to uh, uh, pretty, bring, in a, bring in a big entertainment center. Are voters going to go for it? Can I wave the caution flag on this one? <laughs> because... Um, <laughs> I, I think if you did some hard research around the country, there are cities all over the place that have, like, found a racetrack to be a money pit. Um, when I lived in Savannah, Georgia, and was a reporter there, they spent gobs of money to develop Hutchison Island, which is across the river from downtown, to have some kind of indie lights. I think there were two races before the thing was defunct. And, you know, now there's a Weston Hotel and stuff there. But race cars, I mean... You know, even Indianapolis couldn't keep Formula One, and that's like a racing town. So it's, I mean, they still have, you know, Indy, uh, IndyCar and NASCAR there. But this is, this is hard. It might be a pipe dream, so caution flag. <laughs> Natasha, caution flag or not, what's your quick take? Well, I think whatever happens, whether NASCAR comes or not, that, that part of Aurora, what they're going to do on the Eastern Plains is, is a spot to watch. There's, it's obviously prime for development. It's, its proximity to the, the airport is huge. And, um, yeah, to, whether it's NASCAR or some other big complex or something I haven't even thought of yet, I think it'll come. David, wrap it up for us. Red flag, this ridiculous bill talks about the principles of representative government in which this country was founded. Well, back in 1789, if you wanted to build a horse racing track, you didn't go telling taxpayers to build, to pay for it. You paid for it yourself. And our Colorado Constitution of 1876 utterly forbids corporate welfare. Colorado Supreme Court won't enforce it, but the voters of Aurora should continue to enforce it. No corporate welfare for race courses. Time will tell. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Natasha, you have the honors. Uh, first there was a lot of talk this week about Amazon acquiring Whole Foods and just Amazon's entry into sort of the food world itself and people coming out and saying, well, this kind of solves our food desert problem because food could be delivered anywhere. It doesn't because that means you have to have access to the Internet and you have to have a smartphone and you have to have the funds to pay for all that. So let's not lose sight of, of, of a very important issue, which is solving our food desert crisis. David. The FBI's statement on the attempted murders at the Alexandria baseball field, bizarrely, they said the criminal 
didn't have any particular target in mind. They couldn't figure out why he did it, despite having a record as being a Republican hater for months and months and months, and having a list of six particular Republicans, and having asked just before he began the shooting what party happened to be playing baseball there after he'd found out from the New York Times where they play. The FBI's credibility is much too high in the American mind, not just today, but going back to the days of J. Edgar Hoover and lots of domestic spying in between, the Waco fiasco. Uh, take what the FBI says with a grain of salt, folks. Penn. Mr. McConnell, two wrongs don't make a right. If you were upset with how the Democrats handled the Affordable Care Act back in 2009, you, you, you can't explain your behavior with regard to your approach to tax relief part one. Noel. A digital first media and its owner, Alden Global Capital, have been dragging their feet in uh, negotiations with the News Guild, which represents reporters like me. We've asked for a raise for months, and there's a week to go before the new budget year begins, and we don't have a response. Let's see something nice about somebody quickly. Natasha. Rabbit Ears Peak near Steamboat Springs lost part of its ear this week, and people immediately took a nice turn on it and started to come up with new new phrases for it. So it could be Rabbit Ear Peak. Some people think it looks like a chicken. Some people look at a snail. I would encourage people to go on, look at the before and afters, and see what the new name should be. David. Uh, Fred Cheever, law professor and dean at Denver University, passed away this week very unexpectedly and, and tragically. He was a great environmental and, and public lands law professor and also a, a great leader of the school. Penn. Just shout out to our community. The Juneteenth Festival last week and Pride Fest were both great expressions of civic pride and glad to see those traditions continue in our town. Noel. It's a week of anniversaries. My husband Jay and I celebrated number seven on Monday, and even bigger today, my mom and dad, Thomas and Suzanne Phillips in Dixon Springs, Tennessee, have been married 50 years. 50 awesome. Years. That yeah. is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. That is all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. But before we go, let me answer two possible questions you might be asking yourself watching the show. Why did Dominic shave his goatee, or when did Channel 12 let the intern host CIO? Both are fair questions. It has everything to do with our special episode next week. It's that time of year again for Colorado Inside Out to jump into the time machine. This year we go back to 1917, as Colorado mourns the death of Buffalo Bill Cody, deals with the United States entering the Great War in Europe, and big projects in the city of Denver. I play Father, Brown, Father John Brown, president of the College of Sacred Heart, which in 1921 becomes Regis College. And my esteemed colleagues to my left here, Natasha Gardner and David Copel, also play wonderful roles, uh, Emily Griffith and U.S. Senator John Shaproth. You will not want to miss it. Be sure to check it out next week, June 30th at 8 p.m. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching us. Good night, and we'll see you next week in 1917.